Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that you are worshiping the Lord this morning in your heart as you join together in worship and corporate worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I truly believe Christ's promise that and declaration that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, not overpower it. That's uh, Matthew 16, 18. As a matter of fact, I, I've so much believed that that I've staked my life and ministry upon that promise. I'm convinced that Jesus is involved in every aspect of building his church, anything, all of it, all the way down to even where we're located, uh, in what building we're located, and what our bank account is. All of those things he is sovereign over, and he's intimately involved in in all its affairs. I believe that he is sovereign over his church and that he isn't involved in all its affairs. In Revelation 1, uh, 1, uh, 1, 11-12, John says that he saw Jesus walking among, so he was walking among the seven golden lampstands, which were are the seven churches of Revelation. And in uh, Revelation one twenty, he says that, that the, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven churches are the the, are the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In Revelation two and three, then Jesus gave his messages to those churches, and what we have to recognize is, is that these those churches were actually real churches that existed at that time. And so, putting those things together, a study of Revelation two and three reveals that. Jesus was intimately involved in the life of the churches, that he was walking among them, that he knew everything about them. He even knew things that that could not have been known by anyone except for God himself. I can tell you that he knows things about our church that only God can know, right? He knows things about our heart and who we are and how we're put together. In Revelation 2, 2 and 3, Jesus encouraged Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, for their many good deeds. Just listen to his words to them. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You have also not grown weary. But in Revelation 2.4, he says this, he warns them, that they had left their first love. He says, but this I have against you, that you have left your first love. How could anyone know that they had left their first love? I'm convinced that if we could witness Ephesus, if we could go to Ephesus and and be a part of that church, that they would look great to us. I'm convinced that they had great doctrine. I'm convinced that they were serving Christ by opposing false teachers and apostles. But Jesus alone knew the truth. He, he knew that they had abandoned their love for Him. They, were, they loved being right more than they loved Christ. They loved the fight more than they did Jesus. They rightly understood that love without truth is not truly love. But they forgot that truth without love is nothing more than a sledgehammer. It's a hammer used to beat anyone who opposed it into oblivion. But only Christ could have known that they had fallen in that way. 
Well, today we're continuing our study in Matthew called The King and His Glory. And we've made our way to Matthew 4, 12-17 this morning. I've titled our message this morning, The Father's Perfect Plan. Now, let me connect my opening comments to our text today. I believe that Jesus is intimately aware of every church that proclaims His name. He is intimately involved in faithful and healthy churches that proclaim the true gospel. I would go so far as to say that He has ordered every detail of those churches for His glory. That there is not a person involved in a church that isn't there for a purpose, for His purpose, and for His glory. And I would argue that He knows the good and the bad. And that He uses us for His glory. Now today, as we study Matthew 4, we'll see that this true work, uh, this truth, we'll see this truth that is worked and demonstrated in the life and the ministry of our Lord. So with that, let's, let's pray, and then I'll read Matthew 4, 7-12. through 12. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. I do pray that we would understand that You are involved in every intimate detail of, of our church. You are involved in every detail of every church that proclaims the name of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see that ministry that we might have is not our ministry, but Your ministry. And I pray that we would see that demonstrated in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He followed Your perfect plan even to go to the cross and die for our sins so that we might uh, have eternal life. Father, I pray that we would see that You are, again, intimately, sovereignly involved in everything. And that You see everything. And that You have a perfect plan even for us. In Christ's name, Amen. Let's read, starting in Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, He departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now before we dive into the text this morning, Matthew 4.12-17, I, I want to give you a quick, quick review. If you remember back in chapter 1, we studied the genealogy or the origin of Jesus the Messiah, who was Christ the King. Uh, we, we, after studying his kingly background, we saw the miracle of his heavenly conception. Now you may recall that Jesus' earthly father was Joseph, and his mother was the Virgin Mary. But what we also saw that Mary had been found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus' birth was no ordinary birth. It was the virgin birth. He had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, and after his birth, Matthew told of a kingly visit uh, as the Magi came to worship Him. He also told of the wicked King Herod who tried to destroy the Lord Jesus while He was yet still a child. But the Father sovereignly protected Him 
that is the Lord Jesus, from Herod's evil schemes. Now after Herod's death, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus back to Israel and settled in the district of Galilee in a town called Nazareth. Now again, what I want you to see is is that God had a a perfect plan for Jesus' life from the very beginning. Now, we know very little about Jesus' life from that point forward uh, uh, to his appearance to be baptized by John, who is the king's herald. Luke gives some brief history when Jesus was 12 and had gone up to Jerusalem and the temple. But other than this, we only know that through his childhood and as a young adult, that Luke says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, over the past couple of months, we've studied the King's Herald, John the Baptist. He was, uh, you might call, the forerunner of the king. John's job, John the Baptist, his job was to prepare for the king's arrival. Uh, according to Matthew 3.3, 3, this was the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He did this by preaching his message, a message of repentance, and by confronting the Jewish leadership with his message and his life. And he he challenged his listeners, especially the Jewish leaders, that God's judgment was coming. He said his his winnowing fork, in Matthew 3.12, he says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, John had one last major responsibility before John's ministry began to fade out. It was like the volume being faded out. Uh, His ministry was highlighted by baptizing the Lord Jesus. And in Matthew 3.13, the Lord Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by Him. Now, you may recall that this was Jesus' coronation the, the Spirit of God came upon him, anointing him for ministry, and the Father proclaimed of him a, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This was uh, the Lord Jesus' coronation as King. It, it, it was his public, uh, the, the public statement that he was the Son of God. Now, in these past few weeks, we've seen the testing of the King. So just after John had baptized him and and just after uh, the Father had proclaimed him to be uh, the Son of God, the Spirit drove Jesus, according to Matthew 4.1, the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus' response to to the enemy's temptations proved that He was worthy to be called the Son of God. They also proved that He was ready to embark on His ministry according to God's preordained plan. And I want to make sure that we understand that every step along the way was according to God's preordained plan that that He appeared before John and and was proclaimed to be the Son of God that He went to the testing in the wilderness and that that was all according to God's plan. And in Matthew 4.11, the devil, after he had tempted him, after the Lord had been tested, uh, the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. You see, the, the, the temptations, uh, according to Matthew, the temptations uh, for, were over for that moment. 
The devil left him, but we know that it, that he wouldn't uh, leave him forever, but that he would come back. But but we know that at that moment he left him, and and Jesus had been proven to be the Son of God. He had been proven to be the King. You see, he had triumphed over the temptations of the evil one. Uh, he had he had triumphed over his temptations, but uh, ultimately, what God what the devil meant for temptations, the the Lord used as a test to show not to uh, or to show that he truly is the Son of God. To show that to uh, Satan and to the demonic world that this this is the Son of God who is the true King. You see, God had given Satan power to rule over this world, and he had tempted Jesus at, at Jesus' lowest point. Uh, the Satan, who is the prince of this world, the king of darkness, and, and he has been beaten. You see, Christ has proven that he is the supreme king, and now his ministry could begin. This brings us to our text in Matthew 4 12 through 17. In Matthew 4, 12-17, Matthew carefully reveals four truths about the Father's plan, plans for Jesus' life and ministry. We need to recognize that our glorious God, with His great grace, governs the ministry's timing. It is timely and true. It, it governs a, a ministry's placement. And it also governs a ministry's message. And it governs a ministry's result, which is resounding and remarkable. Now, we will see the first two truths today, and then after that, the next time I preach, you, we will go over, we'll do the, next, the, the last two truths. So we'll be in this section for two Sundays. So first, we need to recognize that our glorious God, with His great grace, governs a ministry's timing. Now, look at Matthew 4.12. It says, Matthew says, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody... Now, as we dive into this verse, I need to show you where this fits in the gospel record, in the record of the Lord Jesus' life. And I, and I believe that when we see how this fits, we will recognize that the Father's timing is timely. Now, believe it or not, there was a one-year period between verses 11 and verse 12. One year has elapsed between Jesus' wilderness temptations and the official beginning of His ministry in verse 12. Now we have to remember that Matthew has a specific purpose in mind as he pens his Gospel. He is presenting, <coughs> he is presenting Jesus as the King. We've seen that. One would assume that the events of that first year do not, don't advance Matthew's theme that Jesus is the King. But that's not to say that this time period is unimportant. And God's sovereignty... We have four gospel records. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the Apostle John actually gives us the detail we need to understand all that happened in this period of Jesus' life. Now, we can learn about this stage of Jesus' life and ministry from John 1.19 through John 4.42. Now, according to that text, according to John's Gospel, we know that after John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, that Jesus stayed three days near the Jordan where John continued to baptize. Now during those, during those days, he gave testimony to Jesus' identity as the, the Messiah. Now on the first day, he testified that Jesus, this is John 1.27, that the, Jesus is the one who comes after me. 
So John recognized that Jesus would be the one that he had been preaching about, the one he had been, he had been calling out about. And, and he knew, uh, according to John 1.27, that Jesus, that, that he was unworthy even to untie the, the strap of Jesus' sandal. Now on the second day, he declared that Jesus, uh, according to John 1.29, it says on the next day, he said that he says of Jesus, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Now, on that day, he witnessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Where did he get that? Right. And on the third day, and according to verse thirty-six, on the third day, he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." On the third day, he was also with two of his disciples when he made that proclamation. According to verses 35 through 37, he was standing with these two, two disciples and they, they heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And one of those disciples was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, back when I preached about John the Baptist, we saw that he was the last of the, New, or the Old Testament prophets. And therefore, what we saw was that he is a transition or a bridge from the Old Testament with Israel and the prophets to the New Testament with the apostles and the church. And in John 1 through 4, we're seeing that transition take place because we're seeing John's ministry overlap with Jesus's ministry. In John 3:28, John declared I, that he was not the Christ, but had been sent as the, the bridegroom. He, he rejoiced that the Messiah had, had arrived. <clears throat> Then he, then he testified that he must increase and I must decrease. So it's not as if that there was this abrupt ending to John's ministry. He continued to preach and baptize during this first year, this overlap year with Jesus' ministry. Now during that time though, Jesus began to be more prominent while John began to phase out. At the wedding at Cana, according to John Two, 1 to 11, Jesus performed his first miracle. He went to, and, he, and according to John 2, he also went to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. He said he, he's, he drove out those who were making his father's house a place of business. Also in John 3, his private yet famous conversation with Nicodemus regarding the nature of salvation. That's 3 1 through 21. And, and you might, it's, it's interesting that in John 3, verse 2, he tells Jesus that uh, Jesus came to him by night and he said to him, this is Nicodemus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, it was after Jesus' testimony to Nicodemus that John the Baptist gave his final recorded testimony regarding his ministry and the Messiah's ministry. Fittingly, John gave two starkly different alternatives in how to receive Jesus' ministry and message. And John the Baptist's words, in John's words, that is, it says, He who believes in the Son, let me make sure before I, before I quote this, I want to make sure. In John 3.36, just want to make sure I've got the right person talking here. Yeah, John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So therefore, as John's ministry was phasing out, he gave an, an invitation that still stands today. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God or face the Father's wrath for your unbelief. Now at this point in his ministry, Jesus' popularity and notoriety with the Jewish leadership was growing. Therefore, the time had come for him to begin a, a new phase of his ministry. It was at that time that Jesus left Judea and traveled to Galilee. But as he traveled, he went through Samaria, which sits, which sits between Judea and Galilee. There he met the woman at the well. That's John chapter 4, verse 7. Now you might recall the story. And after his conversation with the woman, she came to believe in Jesus and testified to her city that he was the Messiah. And she told, she told many, and many, according to John 4.41, many more believed because of his word. Now it's at this point, so we've gone through John 2, we've gone through John 3, now we're in John 4. It's at this point that John tells us that Jesus went from there, from from Samaria into Galilee, which is north of Judea and Jerusalem. And John 4.43 says, after two days, after two days in Samaria, he went from there into Galilee. Now it's at this point, I hope you're following me, it's at this point where Matthew picks up where John leaves off. Now here's what, again, what you should recognize from all of these uh, events. Jesus always worked according to the Father's divine plan. He never once deviated from it. In John 2, at the wedding in Cana, He told His mother that His hour had not yet come. And as His ministry progressed, even in John 7, verse 30, He told them and He understood that His hour had not come. He didn't allow them to seize Him at that point. And John 8 is the same thing. But later in John 12 and in John 17, as he faced, as the cross was imminent, he knew that his hour had come. And Jesus knew that the Father, that the Father had, had planned on what was going to happen, and he knew that the time had, was, at, was, was there, was now. You see, here's the point Jesus fully understood that the Father's timing is always right. We're not, we're not Jesus, right? But we need to recognize the sovereignty of God in our lives. We need to recognize that God's sovereignty governs our lives and, and He governs our ministry. You see, nothing escapes our Lord's notice. Nothing is outside of His divine plan. Even with His own Son, Jesus, God governed the timing of His ministry. Every step that Jesus took was ordained by the Father. And, and this is really, this is no different with us. Your life has been ordered by, uh, by the Lord. If you find yourself waiting on Him, I mean, in this year, I mean, uh, you see John the Baptist phasing out and the Lord phase, being phased in and, and the Lord being made more prominent. Uh, you, John the Baptist even wondered what was going on. Uh, if you find yourself waiting on God, if you find yourself not understanding His timing, you, you have to understand this, that His timing is always right. It's always right. You need to understand also that our Father's timing is true. 
true. Look back at 4.12 again. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee. Now we know that from John that, that several major events occurred prior to Jesus' arrival in Galilee. We saw that. But according to Matthew, Jesus began His official ministry when John the Baptist had been taken into custody. You see, it was necessary for John and, and Jesus to have this period of transition, this overlap, if you will. Now, John's ministry had continued until it was time for Jesus to take center stage. Now, Herod, Antipas, imprisoned John by throwing him into a dungeon at a, at a palace built on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. Herod, this, this particular Herod, had taken his half-brother Philip's wife, Philip's, his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias, for himself. And so, John had called him out for this. John had called him out for this brazen act of wickedness. So Herod had him taken into custody, which ended John's public ministry. John had lost his freedom and would ultimately lose his head. Now, you may recall from our previous studies that of a man named Herod the Great. He was the non-Jewish Idumean king when Jesus was born. And back, if you went back and listened to the sermon, I, I called him the unhappy, unhinged, and very wicked false king who tried to kill Jesus soon after his birth. He's, this guy was a wicked dude. But that Herod died soon after, uh, soon after Jesus' birth, which actually allowed Joseph and Mary to return to Nazareth with Jesus. You remember they had, they had fled into Egypt because of Herod. They were afraid of, or not afraid of him, but they didn't want Herod to, to kill Jesus. So God told them to go into Egypt. Now this, this Herod is dead. And so, so he, he, Mary and Joseph were able to return from, or to Nazareth from Egypt. Now this, this man was not only wicked, but he also had an incredibly dysfunctional family. The ones who survived him, the ones who survived his evil onslaught, I mean, he, was, he killed people all around him all the time, uh, those who survived his onslaught and were around after his death fought over who would succeed him. Now ultimately, Rome appointed multiple sons to divide the rule among different regions. His son, Herod Antipas, was tetrarch over Galilee and Perea. Now these regions happened to be where John and Jesus were most active in their ministry. Perea covered the, the area around the Jordan, and Galilee was in the area that we're speaking of today. Now, John got crossways with this man, as we said, because he called out his relationship with Herodias. Now, Herodias was incredibly wicked herself. Now, she was no walk in the park. She, her daughter, Salome, according to Matthew 14, verse 6 through 11, her daughter, Salome, uh, danced before Herod, and, was, and pleased him so much, uh, how weird is that, that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now Herodias, on her part, because she was, uh, again, she was a nice lady. I mean, she was a wicked lady. Wasn't very nice. She actually asked for John's head on a platter. She didn't, like, she didn't like being called out by John, so she said, hey, I want his head on a platter. So she prompted, Herodias prompted her daughter, Salome, to give John's head on the platter. The text says that, that Herod, on his part, was grieved 
But he did what he did what they they asked him to do. He he commanded it <clears throat> according to according to the text. He commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He didn't want to be he didn't want to be called out for not doing what he promised. So he sent and he had John beheaded in prison. Now this vile and wicked act again is indicative of the wickedness of this family. Yet. It was, it was even beyond, this, this, this act was even beyond the, the boundaries of Herod's evil. He, he, he was grieved by it. So with John's death, Jesus now takes full center stage. His, his ministry is set center stage, and his ministry now is in full swing, according to Matthew. Now, said, said another way, that transition is now complete. And all of this was fully and completely part of the Father's plan. Now just think of these things from, from the, the vantage point of Herod and Herodias. Uh, they, had, they had no way of knowing that their actions would actually trigger the beginning of the greatest ministry the world has ever seen. Herodias cared nothing for the weird little Jewish preacher who, who condemned them. Uh, she was acting according to her evil will and carrying out her sinful and vile act. But behind the scenes, the Father was working all things for John's good. He was working all things uh, according to His will. You have to see life in that way, beloved. We have to know that for those who love God, all things, God, God works all things to their good. And so, even though John was imprisoned, even though he was beheaded, that was for His ultimate good. As John languished in that in that dungeon, he couldn't have known why God allowed this to happen to him. He couldn't have known that in the, in the Father's sovereign timing that that transition would be over. And that the King would now take center stage, the King whom he denounced. Now before we, before we move on, let me make one more observation about this. According to Matthew 4.12, it says that when Jesus had heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into, into Galilee. You may notice that Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody. In other words, he found about, uh, Jesus found out about John's imprisonment the same way you and I would. By word of mouth. Just like everyone else. I find that fascinating, do you? I find it fascinating. It shows that he had truly emptied himself and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2, 6-8. Can you imagine, just for a moment, the, the humility of trusting the Father's plan? The, the humility of trusting in the Father's timing. Because he knew that the timing was true. Now it was time for Jesus to start his ministry in full swing. Now we've seen then that, that our glorious God governs a ministry's timing. Let's look at the second truth. We need to recognize that our glorious God with His great grace governs a ministry's placements. So it's, it's the timing of the ministry and now the placement of the ministry. Notice in 4.12, He departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, He came and lived in Capernaum. Now as we have seen, there is no part of Jesus' ministry that happened outside of the Father's plan and timing. 
But we should also recognize that even the geographic location of his ministry was under the Father's control and had great purpose. Now, the Legacy Standard Bible says that he departed into Galilee. The idea here of the verb uh, that's translated departed has the idea of, of withdrawing or, or withdrawing possibly in the face of danger. The ESV uh, translates the, the, with the word withdrew. He, he withdrew into Galilee. But now we have to recognize that while John's execution triggered this event, that Jesus didn't go to Galilee because of fear. He went there, and what I want you to see, if you see nothing else today, what I want you to see, He went there because that was the, the Father's plan all along. It was His next scheduled stop, if you will. It was the next thing on the Father's agenda. And it had a purpose. You see, Jesus didn't fear Herod. If that were so, He wouldn't have gone into Galilee, would He? Because He was Tetrarch over Galilee. So he would have been jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, right? The Apostle John's Gospel actually helps us fill in the gaps with a little bit of additional information. The, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. In other words, Jesus' ministry had become more prominent than John's, and it was drawing the attention of the people and the attention of the Jewish leadership. That's according to John 4, 1-3. So, Jesus had not yet started preaching, but He was becoming well-known. And He was also associated with John the Baptist because of His baptism. So these things had put Jesus square on the Pharisees' radar. You see, they hated John. So Jesus would definitely be in their, their crosshairs, right? So now that Herod had actually taken care of pesky John, you see, you see they, they didn't want to do it. They definitely didn't. They wanted to kill John, that is, but they were afraid of him because the people regarded him as a, as a prophet. So when Herod took care of him, this put Jesus right on the hot seat, right? Now again, Jesus didn't fear them. Jesus didn't fear them. But what we have to recognize is that Jesus was on the Father's timetable, so He wanted to avoid confrontation at that point. Therefore, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Now let's take a, a few minutes to study the geography of Galilee. Now, as we do, I, I believe we'll see that our Father's placement is precise. It's precise. And, and the region of Galilee was created by the Romans as they divided the larger geographical area of Israel. Remember, they, they broke it up into these different rulers. Galilee was one of those areas. Galilee sat mostly to the west, but it also wrapped around to the north and the south of the Sea of Galilee which is in the northern part, what would be the north, basically the northeastern uh, part of Israel. Now, the Sea of Galilee was really a large lake that some, some, sometimes is called Tiberias or Gennesaret. Now, according to, that's according to, we see that in John 6.1 and, and in Luke 5.1. Now, Galilee is around 60 miles from the north to the south and 30 miles from the east to the west. There were quite a, quite a few people who actually lived there. Actually, it was, a, it was a pretty crowded place. Some 
have estimated that up to 2 million people lived there in the first century. Now, the soil in Galilee was incredibly fertile. Therefore, agriculture, agriculture was great. Now, the, 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 it, was called, it could be called the breadbasket of Palestine. Or it was called that. And also, the lake's fishing, the Sea of Galilee's fishing was incredible. It produced large quantities of, of a variety of fish. The, the Jewish historian Josephus described the area as follows. It says this, this is, the, this is of Galilee. For their soil is universally rich and fruitful, and full of plantations of trees of all sorts, insomuch that it invites the most slothful to take pains in its cultivation by its fruitfulness. Accordingly, it is cultivated by its inhabitants, and, and no part of it lies idle. Moreover, the cities lie here very thick, and very many villages there are here. They're here everywhere so full of people by the richness of their soil that the very least of them contain 15,000 inhabitants. That's Josephus' recording of, of the Galilean region. Now again, uh, you have to remember that, that you have Jerusalem to the south, uh, Galilee sat to the north of, of Jerusalem. And then you had the, the Sea of Galilee, and Galilee wraps around the top of the Sea of, Gal of Galilee. Now here in America... We might say the people of Galilee were more country folk than those of Judea and the city of, of Jerusalem. The people in the area were certainly, the people of Galilee were certainly more tied to the land because, because of the agriculture and because of the fishing. So therefore they were less uh, sophisticated. Uh, here in the south you might call them, uh, they weren't as cityfied, if you will. They, they, they also had an accent. Here in the south we have the, the southern accent. Well, the Galileans had a distinct accent as well. As a matter of fact, Peter's accent gave him away uh, during Jesus' trial in Matthew 26, verse 73. We see that. It said they, they, he was a, one of the bystanders came to him and said, Surely you are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Now it is interesting that historians have noted that Galileans were more open to change than the religious folks in Jerusalem. And perhaps... That's why Jesus went there. They, they were accustomed to being a mixing pot of ideas since there was a mix of Jews and Gentiles in that region. And in his commentary on this verse, John MacArthur wonders if perhaps Jesus chose his disciples from that area because they had, would be less bound to Jewish tradition and more open to the newest, or the newness of the gospel, end quote. Ultimately, we know that, that Jesus chose to base his ministry in Galilee according to God's, again, according to God's sovereign plan. Now look back at your text in Matthew 4.13. And leaving Nazareth, he came to Capernaum, Capernaum, which is by the sea. Now Jesus stayed in Nazareth for some period of time. Nazareth is a city in, within the Galilee region. Now turn to it's, it's actually a city that sits to the south, what would be the southwest of, of the, the, the area of Capernaum. So just imagine north of Jerusalem, yet south of, south of this area of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Now turn to Luke 4. In Luke 4, 14-15, Luke gives us some background information about his stay in Nazareth. 
Notice in verse 13, just to tie this together with our text in Matthew, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, we know that there was this time period between, uh, so that's like it jumps, just like Matthew does. And Jesus returned to, Ma- or to, uh, to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. Now, Luke tells us in verse, chapter 4, verse 16, that He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And, in, and, and after reading in, in chapter 4, verse, uh, after reading from the prophet Isaiah, uh, in chapter, Luke chapter 4, verse 22, they were all speaking well of him and marveling at, his, at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? So Jesus had actually grown up in Nazareth and they're saying, Whoa, wait a minute. This guy, wow, this, isn't, this doesn't seem like the guy that, we, that grew up here. Uh, what's happened? What's, is this not Joseph's son? But then, but then in verses 23-27, this is again Luke 4, Jesus calls them out for their bankrupt spiritual condition. He compares their spiritual condition to the days of Elijah when God cared for a Gentile uh, widow. That's... Chapter 4, verse 26. And he also compared to them, them to the days of Elisha when God healed Naaman the Syrian. In other words, what's going on is that Jesus seemed to suggest that God may be withholding His divine grace from them and extending it to the Gentiles. Now, the people in that synagogue certainly didn't like what they heard. Look at Luke 4, 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill which, on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, I've stood on that cliff that we're talking about, and had they thrown him down, he'd be dead. Except he's Jesus, but you get, you get the point. So, they were pretty ticked at what they heard. And they intended to murder him. I mean, that's what the intent was. But look at 4.30. But passing through their midst, he went his own way. You see, Jesus knew that it was not his time. Jesus knew that that was not on the Father's timetable. Look at 4.31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching on the Sabbath. So he left Nazareth then, and he went, traveled northeast to Capernaum, which is by the sea. Notice that he lived in Capernaum. Now back in Matthew 4.13, he lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Now, Capernaum was a town that sat on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. The, the, the name actually means village of Nahum. So it may have been named for the prophet Nahum, but Nahum simply means compassion. So it may have been named that, that, that name because one or more of its inhabitants were known for their uh, compassion. Matthew, the tax collector and author of our Gospel, Matthew, uh, referred to the city, this city as his own city, speaking of Jesus. So, so we know that, it, that uh, that's in Matthew 9.1. We know then that this is where Jesus then made his, made his home base. 
But it was also where Matthew was based. And Matthew had a tax office there, according, according to Matthew 9. And he collected taxes, collected taxes from the people in that area. So Matthew was very familiar with this area along with the other disciples. Now, during Matthew and Jesus' time, Capernaum was a, a flourishing place because of the, of the fishing industry. Now, just a, a, on a side note, in Matthew 11, uh, 23 and 24, Jesus had ultimately had some harsh words of warning from them. He says that, uh, and Capernaum, will you, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades, Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Solomon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, what I want to note here is that today this area is mostly empty, except for the Christians who visit there to see where Jesus and the, and the disciples live. Now, before we finish today, I want, to, I want to briefly show you that our Father's placement is perfect. Look back at your Bibles in Matthew 4, 14-16. So, it says that Pernum, which is by the sea, in verse 13, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order... That, was, that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Stop right there. What's happening is, is that Matthew is quoting Isaiah 9, 1-2. He's quoting Isaiah 9. Now, we'll dump, jump deeper into this text next time. But let me give you a, a quick sketch of Matthew's point. In 2 Kings 15.29, you don't have to turn there unless you want to, when the king of Assyria invaded the northern kingdom, he first came to Galilee, west of the Jordan, and took them away into exile in Assyria. We've been kind of reading through this in Isaiah. We have been reading through it in Isaiah. This was the beginning of the end for Israel and Judah. They would go through many dark days. But, according to Isaiah 9-2, which is what Matthew's quoting, there would be a great light. In Isaiah 9-2, Isaiah prophesies that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. Matthew is saying that that great light had come. And he had taken up residence in Galilee. Which is what Isaiah had prophesied. You see, my Messiah Jesus, the true King, has arrived in Galilee and has started, is now starting His ministry just as Isaiah had prophesied centuries before. Now, Later in John 8, 12, Jesus proclaimed, just listen to His Word. In John 8, 12, 
Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, the true life had come. John had faded. John's ministry was over. Jesus' ministry was now center stage. And He promises that those who follow Him will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8.12. In, John, in, in 1 John 1.5, the Apostle John declares, and this is the message we have heard from Him and declared to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Beloved, we serve a Lord who is holy, who has no darkness in Him. 1 John 1.6, he continues, if we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not tell the truth. You see, the light had come. And that light still shines bright today. It's, it's never been dimmed. And it will continue to shine bright. And, and John says that if you claim fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, you lie and do not tell the truth. Because there's no darkness in Him, to, in him at all. And if you're here today and claim to have fellowship with Christ, you cannot walk in the darkness. Because He is the great light. John goes on to say, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have, and we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Beloved, you're here today and you know Him. You're here today and you know Him. You're in the lights. We walk are to walk our lives in the lights. That light dawned in Galilee. If you're here today and you don't know him, if you're here today and you find yourself in the darkness, I pray that you'll turn to him. I pray that you'll come into his light. I pray that you will. Confess your sins. It's, it promises us if we confess our sins, uh, speaking to believers, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, as an unbeliever, if you turn to Him, if you repent of your sins, if you turn to Him confessing your sins, He is a faithful and righteous uh, God who will forgive you. He will save you. He's calling you now. Come into the light. No longer walk in darkness. Father God, we thank You this morning and praise You. I do pray that we would see the significance of this great light coming. Having come significance of our Lord Jesus' ministry. The light is dawned. Father, I pray that we would see that and understand it and that we would walk in the light. And that we would proclaim His name to a lost and dying world that still lies in the darkness. In Christ's name, Amen.